0: Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thank you for gathering here. Thank you for bringing the church into this YMCA gymnasium. If we've not had the opportunity to meet, my name is Jamie. It is my great joy and privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at Crosspoint, uh, and it's my, my joy to be able to uh, open up God's Word with you all this morning. And so we are uh, in week two of a series called On Earth As It Is in Heaven, but really we're in year three of this series, all right? And so Eric introduced this last week in week one, that's online in case you missed it. Uh, but this is a series that we've been coming back to now, This, like I said, this is the third year, looking at this idea of Jesus' prayer and specifically this line where he prays and he teaches us to pray, like, your will be done on earth as it is is in heaven. We want to unpack that. We want to explore that. And as I've been reflecting on this, and just so you kind of know where we're heading in this, this series, here's what we've been looking at. So last week, we looked at Jesus and, and justice, Jesus's overall mission. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at justice and the sanctity of life. We're going to look at racial reconciliation next week. We're going to look at like evangelism, church planning, God's heart for the nations, all of those things in the, the last week. But as I've been reflecting back on what we've done in this series over the last couple of years, each year that I've stood up here, including the, this morning, there's a sense of nervousness, all right? And the nervousness maybe could be attributed to like that's kind of a doozy of a list, right, to go through. I mean, there's some tough topics that we're going to be getting into, and so I think there's some of that. And I know myself well enough to know. I am in no way a subject matter expert on the, these things, all right? Um, and so there's, I think there's some nervousness there. Um, it can also be sometimes you start talking about some of these things. And there are people that right away maybe are feeling this angst of like, hey, are we abandoning the gospel? Is this some sort of just social program? Like, what are we talking about here? Just some of these topics. There's lots of different, like, they're contentious topics, all right? I think it's fair to, to say that. And so, yeah, maybe it's some of those things, but more than that, the big thing for me, all right, and maybe you feel this as well, is I believe if we live out this prayer that Jesus is inviting us to pray and not simply just kind of sit back and like offer it up and then forget about it, but to actually pray that God might use us so that his will might be done on on earth as it is in heaven, this is costly. Like it's going to infringe upon your time, your talent, your, your treasure. It'll have a hit in your bank account, in your, your time. It will have, it'll cost you and me something if we're going to be the kinds of people that God is inviting us to be, to be a church that seeks justice. And so as we get into it, right, let's, we're going to keep coming back to this in Matthew six ten. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not my will, not your will, not the will of Crosspoint, whatever we come up with, but would Jesus's will be done not just some way on, day off in the future and some other place and some abstract sort of idea, but like no, like right here, right now, in our cultural moment, would God's will be done in and through us? All right, to make this earthly realm a bit more as God intended it to be. That's the idea of heaven. That like the presence of God would indwell this space, your neighborhood, your workplace, your family. Like there'd be a, a renewed connection that you have with Him. So that's what we're praying now. One of the things we've looked at over the last couple years, and we're going to look at this again today and throughout this series, all right, is one of the summary words for this idea, I think, of what Jesus prayed, all right, shows up some 200 times in the Old Testament alone, all right, it's this Hebrew word mishpat, all right? It's a fun word to say. You can say it with me on three, one, two, three. Mishpat. That was weak. But anyway, okay, you get the idea, right? Mishpat is this word that means justice. That's how it gets translated, all right? But it's this idea of this right ordering of things. And so we see in Micah chapter six, verse eight, maybe you're familiar with this passage. He has told you, O oh man, like what is good? What does the Lord require of you? So if he kind of boils it down, look at what are we called to be as a, as a follower of God? To do justice, to do mishpat is the word there, and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. There's this call over and over and over again to be about justice, about a right ordering of things. Prophet Amos would speak of this, Amos chapter 5. Look at the strong language that is used here, all right, talking about, Church gatherings, Bible studies, singing songs, all of that. God's not anti that, but we can miss the mark sometimes. And he says this, I hate, in case we're wondering, I wonder how he feels about this. No, no, I'm just telling you, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, I will actually not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fat animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your song. Like get rid of the instruments, get rid of your voice. I don't care about it at all. To the melody of your harps, I'm not going to listen, the Lord says. But let, all right, and here's the invitation, but let justice, let mishpat roll down like waters and righteousness, like an ever flowing stream. You wanna know what God desires? The heart of God is to see this justice. And so at the end of the day, Mishpat has a sense of justice, like, you know, you're in like a law court and like somebody, justice being meted out and that, that thing. So it has that sort of um, aspect, all right? Like retribution side of it, but it's bigger than that. And this prayer of Jesus and this storyline that we find throughout the scriptures is bigger than just sort of, oh, did that person get justice in the sense of like maybe there was, you know, something wrong that they did and did they get punishment? It has that component, but it's such a small slice of it. The bigger picture of Mishpat is that it's restorative. It's about this movement of God to restore all things. And he invites us in to that. And here's the kicker of it all. The way the Bible uses it is it's not optional. That it's telling us over and over and over again, every single person has a right to Mishpat, to a right ordering of things to justice. If you think it's optional, charity is optional. We're not talking about charity here. We're talking about how the Lord has set things up to say every single person, they bear the image of God. They deserve spot. It is their God-given right to have justice, have a right ordering. And so if that's true, that means you have some God-given rights, but so do your neighbor. And so do the people that you work with. And even that person that just drives you nuts, they have a right, a God-given right that you are not allowed to take from them. In fact, you are called to give them their rights to seek a right ordering, to seek their flourishing. That's a high calling, all right? And this is what this series is about and that's why I told you I'm nervous about it because it's costly like that sounds good in theory until like we all leave here and we scatter and suddenly like we're interacting with other people it's like oh I'm supposed to love you and care for you regardless of how you treat me I'm supposed to enter in I'm supposed to give of my time I'm supposed to give of financially I'm supposed to open up my home to you like all of those things and so this morning what I want to talk specifically about is justice or mishpat and the sanctity of life now, that term there, sanctity, simply means like set apart, holy, revered, consecrated. And so it's a way to talk about the fact that all of life, every human being, all right, there's this sanctity, there's this holiness. Like C.S. Lewis would use this language, like you've never met a mere mortal. Like the person sitting next to you, right? Like you should turn to them at some point in the service and be like, I just need to tell you, you're amazing, all right? You're like, you're this, you're like a saint is how the Bible speaks of it. You're, you're holy, you're set apart, Now, that might weird somebody out, and maybe you aren't going to randomly do that throughout the day, but biblically you could, all right, to talk about the fact that, hey, you're made in the image and likeness of God. You're amazing. Now, sanctity of life, what we did last year in this series is we talked about that specifically, all right, that idea of guarding, protecting what is sacred and what is holy in the womb. So we We did a deep dive in talking through pro-life, abortion. If you want, I would encourage you to go to our website. You can find the sermon from last year, all right, to talk about what the Bible says, all right? We're not going that direction this this morning, all right? Not because that's not a valid topic. I mean, it's a massive topic, all right? But I think there's a way as well that we have to understand this, that sanctity of life is both in the womb and outside of the womb, and that there's a a call to, to revere, to see as holy every single person that walks on this earth. And what is our calling then as the church to seek Mishpat? So there's this interaction. We see it in a number of different places where Jesus is confronted. And so this this morning, too, let me say this. Our typical pattern, if you're new to Crosspoint, like we like to just pick a book of the Bible and go through it. In like three weeks, we start the book of 2 Corinthians. We will be in it for many months, all right? And we will go start in chapter one, and we will make our way through it verse by verse. This morning is going to feel a little bit different because we are going to jump around a little bit more. And so just know that, hey, words, text, scripture will be up on the screen. You can also go to cpwp.life and swipe over to the second card. Message notes will be there. Every text that I talk about, ideas, quotes, things that are up on the screen will be listed there as a way to follow along. But Jesus, throughout his time on this earth, kept having conversations, interactions with people. And sometimes he would get confronted, sometimes it was a trap, people were wanting to kind of trip him up in his words and they wanted to you know, kind of catch him, um, maybe in some what they would think would be some heretical teaching or something, they just had it out for him. And so repeatedly he gets asked like, hey, what's the big thing? Like what is it that we need to do? How do you summarize the law? What do we need to focus on? Um, Luke records this, it's where, it, what I'm gonna read up on the, the, put up on the screen here in a moment is out of Matthew's account, but Luke has a similar account. And there's a teacher of the law says, you know, how do you summarize it? And Jesus talks about loving your neighbor. And he says, well, who is my neighbor? And then we get the parable of the the Good Samaritan. Okay, we've looked at that before as a church. This is Matthew's account, Matthew 22, 35 to 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question again to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second then is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this is Jesus' way of saying, hey, here's a way to understand, like, even the storyline of the Bible, first and foremost, vertically, like, you're called to love God. He's your maker. He's your sustainer. We don't have anything with, except that just comes from the hand of our Father, from God himself. And so let's revere him. Let's honor him. Let's worship him. And he says, secondly, though, there is a call then kind of in this horizontal plane to love your neighbor. And again, I told you like in Luke's account, somebody then asked the follow-up, right? Because they wanna know, well, you can't mean everybody, right, Lord? Like, so who's my neighbor? And then Jesus begins to lay out for them in this shocking parable of the Good Samaritan, like, oh no, anybody, doesn't matter race, doesn't matter socioeconomic class, doesn't matter what religion they are, doesn't matter, any, like you're called to, they're a neighbor. If they're a human being, they're a neighbor. They might not live physically next door to you, but you interact with them at all. Like they are your neighbors and you are to love and to care for them. So where the teacher wanted this, give me this nice little narrow section here so I can maybe have some control over that, maybe feel like I could be a success. Jesus broadens it and is like, you're called to love everybody. And so here again is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it's an invitation for us to bring mishpat to every single person. Not not meaning like you gotta go and save the world, but meaning like when you run into somebody, when you have interactions with somebody, when you have a conversation with somebody, when there's needs there, the mindset shouldn't be, I wonder who's gonna help them. It should be, Lord, do you want me to step in here? There are no coincidences, there's no accidents. That doesn't mean you don't have any boundaries or you gotta run around like trying to be everything to everybody. But do we walk around thinking, Lord, this person is an image bearer. They're amazing, they're made in your image. How can I help bring a right ordering to their life? And so in Matthew 22, love God, love your neighbor. But did you notice what is assumed in here? And this is where I wanna spend a little bit of time this morning. In fact, it'll probably be the bulk of our time. And this is different, I need you to know this. This is different than what I had in mind 10, 11 days ago. I had a particular vision for this sermon and where it was going. All right, and I'll explain more of this in a moment. But as I was studying this and I was thinking about this text and this invitation, love your neighbor as yourself, I was like, okay, assumed in that, embedded in that is a belief that, hey, you actually do love yourself. Like you actually know that the God of the universe loves you. And so it became this jarring sort of thing because here's the reality, all right? You're called to love your neighbor as yourself, but what if you actually don't feel a whole lot of love towards yourself in this moment? Now, as I... Advance that slide and I put that up there and I'm even preparing for, you know, I've been preparing for this, this week. I just need you to know, all right, kind of confession here. I'm a little squeamish right now. Like I actually don't like how that's phrased, all right? You're like, aren't you the one that wrote it? Yes, but just go with me for a moment, right? The reality is I'm a little squeamish because there's so much of a culture of self that exists. It's just like the water that we swim in and everything is like the answers within you and self-help and all of that. And that's not what I'm talking about here. So it's this really, I think it's this line we've got to navigate of what does it look like to know that the God of the universe loves you, all right, that he cares deeply for you, because here's what I'm convinced of. If you don't know that the God of the universe loves you, I don't actually think you and I will be able to be the kinds of Mishpat people, all right, that would love our neighbor well. And so there is this tension here. There's this man, we could go too far with this, and it's all about you, and and just play into the self centeredness. I don't think that's what we need to do. That clearly isn't working. I'll cite a couple things here in a moment about that. At the same time, there is a story that we see throughout the Bible about God's pursuit of you. And so it's not a call to increase selfishness, but I do believe that there's a call in here that we need to embrace and to rest in about the affection that the Lord has for us as his people. If you're a follower of him, the love and affection he has set upon you. I believe this is so needed in our culture. And I believe one of the best ways that we can be a faithful church in loving our neighbor is to actually, one of our goals I think in 2020 should be that we might rest more deeply and know more, more intimately and more profoundly that I'm a child of God, that I rest in him. I shared with us as a church a few months ago, I listened to this particular talk by a senator from Nebraska named Ben Sass. And in this particular talk that he was given, just to kind of give a quick recap, because I don't expect that you remember some of these details necessarily. But what he spoke of was the epidemic that had been going on all right, over a three-year period of time, still waiting on the results of 2019, it's a little too early to know. But in the three preceding years, so 2016, 2017, 2018, the life expectancy in the U.S. was actually on a decline. It's the first time really in, in all of American history that that has happened. And what's fascinating about that is he began to unpack it, and this showcases for us, I think, the problems that we have culturally and how this pursuit of self isn't working and how we really do need an identity that's like short up beyond just like our circumstances, how we feel about ourselves, but to actually know the love of God. And in it, he talked about this. He said, life expectancy is on a decline even though Births are far safer than they've, they've ever been, all right? And so there's more emergencies that are attended to and children are able to, to live and even if they're born very prematurely, obviously not in all cases, but life is being extended and kind of cared for at the beginning and extended at the end of life heart issues, cancer, actually on the decline, so that's not it. He said actually the decline is rooted primarily in a very specific age group, roughly the 25-year-old to 45-year-old demographic. All right, And it's centered around four things. As he began to describe it, he said, really what you have are diseases of despair or deaths of despair. Because they're around suicide, opioid addiction, various other addictions, and liver disease oftentimes from abuse of alcohol. And so in the 25 to 45 year grouping of people, those four things are contributing in such a significant way that the life expectancy of an entire nation is actually on the decline over a three year period of time. We're lonely, we don't handle our emotions well, We've got massive mental health issues, emotional health issues. We've got all kinds of things. We don't know who we are, what to do. And so we go looking and seeking other things, and sometimes get to the point of like, we literally are a nation that's killing itself. And so, It's in that space that we need to think about, okay, how do we love our neighbor and be motivated to do that when sometimes we're just like, man, I can't even get out of bed. I don't know actually what what to do. Like this is hard and it's heavy and I would love to go serve my neighbor, but I feel like an absolute mess. Like, have you been there? Do you experience that? And I know there's varying degrees of that. Some are going to just be in just the the everyday, just kind of tough stuff of life. Someone's going to be in a very clinical, like diagnosed with stuff and everywhere in between. And so not to just keep it in the realm, though, I'll tell you why this shift took place even in this sermon and where I anticipated things to go maybe 10, 11 days ago and where I feel like actually the Lord was saying, hey, focus on this, not in a self-centered sort of way, but I think we need to wrestle with the fact, like, do we actually understand the love that God has for us? So, like a little over a week ago to make this less about some senator from Nebraska talking about things, but for me, all right, I had this moment several, like I said, maybe a week or so ago, and it wasn't anything monumental. So if you're like, oh my gosh, what happened? It wasn't like this big, significant thing. I just found myself in this moment of frustrated with a number of things, and I I walked out of my, my office, and Heather was there, and she's like, are you okay? And I was like, no, and now I've got an audience, and so I'm gonna tell you, okay? And I proceeded to just sort of, I didn't plan on doing this. If she hadn't been there, I probably wouldn't even have said anything. But she asked, and all of a sudden I was just like, I found myself just sort of spewing out this stuff that was just, all these fundamentally, as I reflect back on it, sort of just accusations, really, that I was failing to believe the gospel of who I am as a son who belongs to the king of the universe. And so I had this moment, I was like, oh, I'm just frustrated, I can't, I literally was I, I can't figure out this sermon series, I was just like, I'm not leading well, I'm not a good evangelist, I've got this, I wanna do this as a dad, I didn't do that, I wanna have these things happening, like during our, our break, that I should be rested and yet I'm occupied with this. And there's a whole long list, none of them were like, I don't think all that crazy or unique, but I found myself just spewing these things out to this point of frustration. And I sort of stopped and I went away for a moment um, and I came back and just kind of sat down at the table and realized in that moment, I felt like God's spirit brought to me this this clarity of like, you're feeling a lot of contempt for yourself. I don't know if you've been in that space before, but it was just this series of things, again, just normal everyday stuff of life. But this idea of like, love your neighbor as yourself I was feeling this like I don't really like me right now like there was something going on on a heart level that was just this contempt toward who I am in in the world and so here's what I'll put before you and what we're gonna look at in these next few moments like I actually believe if we're gonna talk sanctity of life in the womb outside of the womb all right to your neighbor but also your life is a sanctity of life issue that I hope and pray that as we continue in this time together this morning as we continue as a church through this series as we continue to gather throughout 2020 my hope and prayer for all of us is that we would see not in this self-centered like journey within find yourself kind of nonsense but rather there's a God who is pursuing you who loves you who wants to lavish you with his love and his grace and I want you to see you as God sees you I need to see me as God sees me because without that There's enough just lies and accusations that I'll believe and enough contempt that's honestly gonna keep me from living a life of mishpat because I can't get like unstuck in my own life. And my guess is I'm not the only one, that we feel that. And so here's what I wanna talk to you about um, in this. All right, that's a whole big setup for this main point. Through the work of Jesus, you are loved. I wanna explore this for a few moments. I wanna read a series of ver- just various texts. I want us to see for a moment why it's so hard to believe this. Your failure, my failure to believe this, I need you to know, we might make excuses or like you know, or maybe direct it again at, our, at ourselves, but I also need you to see like there is a very real enemy who does not want you to feel the love that God has for you. And so, you are loved. Now, I wish I could just say, hey, you're loved. Go in peace, be the church, all right? And we're all good. Like, all right, that's the one word I need to hear for 2020. All right, you are loved. I'm never going to battle this again. But that would be missing the reality of the story that we're part of. So let me read you this. Matthew chapter 3. So we looked at... God's call for us later in Matthew. Now we're going to jump back toward the beginning. Matthew 3, this is about Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him. So the sky splits. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. All right, so here's the Trinity. We got God the Father is going to speak. You got the Holy Spirit descending. You got Jesus coming up out of the water. Father, Son, and Spirit coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased that the Father speaks it. Now, my hope is by our time together today, you will have a clear understanding that these words that were spoken of Jesus can also be true of you if you're in Christ. But I think what we need to see here first is that this is a pattern, this is a paradigm of sorts for understanding, I think, how this works. Because immediately what happens here, Jesus hears these words, imagine that. Like how many of us long for those words, to hear those words from somebody? I'm proud of you. I love you. You you belong. You're not a mess. You're not a screw up. I'm well pleased. Not just from another human being, but from the God of the universe. And Jesus gets that. And then immediately, if you just turn the page and you go to Matthew chapter 4, you find that the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness and he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness. And guess what the enemy, the tempter, Satan, comes to do in that moment? The very first thing he does is he goes after the words that the Father had spoken to his son Jesus, and he's like, if you're the Son of God. I know he declared it, but if you're really the Son of God, then why don't you do these particular things? And that mantra, that lie, that accusation, that point of deception, like it keeps occurring over and over and over again, and Jesus Does what? He continues to rebuke the enemy through the word of God, remembering who he is. Like, he's so solid in his identity. But I'm not. I don't think you are either. And the reality is, like, we need to know, first of all, we're in a battle. Because you might leave today and be like, I'm loved by the God of the universe. And then you are immediately going to be bombarded with lies. Here's, here's the battle that we're in. All right, let me just read a few verses if you don't believe me, all right? This is what is objectively true about the world we live in. We can always see this space, but here's what's happening in some of the spiritual spaces, all right? John ten ten. Jesus says this, the thief, that is Satan, the enemy, comes only, he's fixated on just a couple of things, to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 8, you are of your father, the devil. He's speaking to this group of religious people and your will is to do your father's desires. He was what? He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So you and I need to know that we're loved, and we also need to know that there is somebody that's been a murderer from the beginning, a liar, a thief, somebody out to destroy you. It's what 1 Peter says in chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded then. He's warning us, like, pay attention. Don't discard this. Don't think this is some kind of weird kind of spiritual stuff. No. This is the world we inhabit. Your adversary, the one who's against you, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour And if you, for a moment, think, well, he's seeking somebody else out there. No, no, he's seeking you. He wants to devour your identity. He does not want you and me to rest in our identity in God. He wants us to doubt that. Revelation chapter 12, 9 to 10, describes our enemy this way. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Look how he's described, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for what? For the accuser. So he's the deceiver. He's the accuser of our brothers who have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. There is an enemy who is literally hell bent on accusing you over and over and over again trying to create in you not a love that you would have for yourself in the finished work of Jesus, but a contempt for your very being to the point that it discourages you, immobilizes you, gets you so discouraged that you can't possibly be about this work of mishpat, of a right ordering and of loving your neighbor because at the end of the day, you're crippled by this reality of an enemy that comes to you and just says, you're terrible. God can't love you. Weren't you supposed to be over that? You set goals in 2019. I see you're, you're... a couple weeks in, you're doing the same stupid nonsense that you were before. Give up, let go. It doesn't matter. You are who you are. You're never going to change. And the enemy speaks his native language. It's accusation. What spewed out of me that day were not these, like I said, I don't think they're anything novel or unique, but there was a narrative that I was buying into that like, I got to be better at this. I got to do this. I have some sort of expectations that I need to hold up under, kind of exceed, meet or exceed. And when, in my judgment, that wasn't happening, I honestly believe it was buying into this lie of one who was whispering in my ear, you're not good enough, you're not loved. It's accusation. Now, here's the glorious good news. Yes, we have an enemy, but we have a Savior. We have a God, we have a Father in heaven who's pursued us by giving us his Son. So let me just read these texts. And allow us to just sort of soak in the glorious good news that is the gospel about how we can be and how we are if you're in christ like you are loved right now it doesn't matter if you accomplish a single thing in 2020 that you set out to do or not that the god of the universe loves you because jesus was perfect so you don't have to be john three sixteen, 16 verse 17 for god so loved the world that he gave his only son That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's why Paul would write in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The enemy wants to come and condemn. The enemy wants to speak lies. The enemy wants to say, oh, you messed up here. You did this, so you're not worthy of love. And we are reminded over and over again, if you're in Christ... That part of your story, like, no, that's, that's not your reality anymore. Sure, you still feel that at times, but what's objectively true about you is you have the spotless, perfect righteousness of Jesus that's been given to you. There's no condemnation. Colossians two thirteen to 15, and you who were dead in your trespasses, this is your old story, and he's going to talk about our new story, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he's talking about here, our enemy, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Like, all of those accusations, all of the things. And here's the thing, sometimes the enemy comes and he accuses us of things, and it's like, well, yeah, that actually is true. Yeah, I did screw up. Yeah, I am a mess. And there's other things that are not true. Regardless, all of that stuff got nailed to the cross. And the enemy thought he had made a mockery. That he thought he had put Jesus to open shame. And he tries to shame us. And the reality is the cross and the empty tomb have now flipped the script. And we're with King Jesus and we're in him. And now the enemy, the deceiver, the accuser, he's being put to open shame. He's being mocked. His story is one of death and defeat. I love this account in a commentary by Kent Hughes. He talked about Martin Luther, the reformer Martin Luther, and Luther battled even as a, after he came to the saving knowledge of Jesus, he he battled still the accusations. And so he gives us account of a dream that he had, One, let me read this to you. This is how Hughes tells the story. He says, Martin Luther in a dream in which he was visited at night by Satan, all right, so just a fun little you know, dream you're having, uh, brought him a record of his own life written in his own hand. So Satan shows up, so you're having this dream, and now there's this written record, literally of everything that you've ever done. All right. And the tempter said to him, said to Luther, is that true, did you write it? And the poor, terrified Luther had to confess that it was all true. And so scroll after scroll was unrolled. I mean, just picture this, right? This is not a restful night of sleep, all right? It's just the scroll, just more and more and more. And the same confession was wrung from him again and again. At length, the evil one prepared to take his departure, having brought Luther down to the lowest depths of abject misery. But, now here's the good news. Suddenly, the reformer turned to the tempter and said, it is true, every word of it, but right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. He's so like, take that scroll, write that across it. Take that one, write it across it. That every last thing had been covered. And so yes, he could agree with the enemy. It's all true. I wish I could tell you another story, but like I did that, I messed up. And yet Jesus has paid for it all. That God now, when he sees you, he doesn't see you in the scrolls that are filled with all your inadequacy and all of your shame and all of your rebellion and brokenness, you've been cleansed from that. This is why the Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians 1, 3-8, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. For what? For adoption to himself, as sons, you've got an inheritance. You're part of the family now. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished upon us. Not just a little sprinkling, not like, okay, fine, but I'll give you a little bit of grace. He pours it out. He's like, more grace, more grace, more grace, more love, more affection in all wisdom and insight. That's why Paul would say then is he's praying for a group of people in that church in Ephesus. It's what we need to hear, what we need to be prayed for. Like this needs to be our prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That what? Here's the prayer: that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Don't you want that? And the reality is, right now, if you're in Christ, this is true of you. Like in a way beyond your comprehension, beyond what you and I can possibly even explain, there's a love that the God of the universe has for you. That's why what is spoken of in Zephaniah 3.17, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, these words are true of you. The Lord your God is in your midst, which would be a terrifying prospect if we didn't have the righteousness of Jesus. A mighty one who will save, he will and he does rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. That's not the act of a God who's like, oh gosh, I don't want people to know that, you know, that guy's with me. I want everybody to know. That's my son. That's my daughter. The words that he spoke to Jesus when he came up out of the water, like you're my beloved and you I am well pleased. He now speaks to you. Do you know that you're loved by God? or Are you believing the lies of the enemy, the accusations of the enemy? 2 Corinthians 5, we could. Read more, but I'll stop here. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's your story if you're a Christian. You've been made new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. J.I. Packer, in his wonderful book called Knowing God, asked us to consider this. Cause he says there's massive implications for us knowing that we're loved by God. And then in turn, like how we're actually able to love other people. Like, you and I cannot be a people of Mishpat unless we are resting in the fact that we are loved by the God of the universe, that we've been made right because of the finished work of Jesus. That's nothing that you bring. You're not awesome. You know, if it's not like, go oh, well, just, just, you know, journey within you. If you just journey within you, like you just, that's not a pretty picture in any of our lives. We need Jesus. But when you know that God has set his love and affection on you, like, it begins to change things. The so Packer says this, consider this, could an observer learn from the quality and degree of love that I show to others, my wife, my husband, my family, my neighbors, people at church, people at work, anything at all about the greatness of God's love to me? Meditate upon these things and examine yourself. If you were to ask somebody like, hey, do you think I walk around knowing that God loves me, like they should be able to sense that based on like, oh, like we just have this overflow. The reality is I'm not the follower of Jesus that I'm called to be because I oftentimes am listening to the accusations and not believing the identity that I have in Christ because if I did, it would actually propel me to be more sacrificial and more loving and not to earn anything but rather just in this grateful, glad response of what God has done. So I want to ask you just very practically, what is your plan to experience the love of the Father? I mean, you might've come up with 2020 goals and things and great, right? Maybe you got stuff for work, family, whatever. But like, I think the most important question that you can ask, not even what are you going to do for the Lord? Like what's going to be your plan? Because your life matters, the sanctity of your life, you've been made in the image of God been created for relationship with your father what is your plan to experience the love of the father and certainly there are things that we offer as a church i, I hope that you gather on sunday morning and you help it helps you experience the love of the father groups that are starting all, all of that right yes and amen to all of those things but what is it gonna what is it gonna look like like this is a, a space for us to be intentional in like we don't Arrive. We don't like, oh, I got the gospel, and then we kind of move on to something else. Like, we need to have the gospel pressed in. We need to know that we're loved. So very practically for me, I'm thinking, that, okay, I'm going to sign up for what is really sort of this, this, I would say it's sort of a, I wouldn't say class, but like a, a, a course of sorts on the gospel that's accompanied with like a spiritual advisor, kind of coach, counselor, mentor, to just help think through the implications of this. So that's practically, like, how would I answer that question? That's what I'm going to attempt to do in this upcoming year. Not because I don't believe the God. It's not like I've abandoned the gospel, but I know I don't believe it enough because if I did, I wouldn't have some of the contempt that I feel at times. Like, I need to know more fully and rest more fully in the fact that I've been loved by the God of the universe. So what is your discipleship going to look like? What's your involvement going to look like? Not to earn anything, but, like, what environments are you going to put yourself in to press the gospel in more fully? Maybe you're battling at a, like a clinical level, some severe depression and anxiety. Like, I, I, gotta, I gotta seek out a counsel. I gotta get some help. Like, whatever it is. All of that stuff is gonna help you experience the love of the Father. And so, the big thing, if nothing else hear this: you're loved. Through the finished work of Jesus, you've got nothing to prove. In the next couple of weeks, we're gonna talk more of our calling to care and love. And there are gonna be opportunities. We've got a Mishpot project we're doing again this year. If that's new to you, I'll explain that more in a couple of weeks. All outworkings, though, of knowing that we are loved by God. I don't have time to read all this right now because I'm out of time, all right? And so I just wanna encourage you. In Matthew chapter 25, maybe you're familiar with this. Jesus gives this account where he's separating out, it's judgment, it's a hard passage. And he's looking out over a group of people and he says, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? They're perplexed by this. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me that as we then know that we're loved, we are then a called people that are sent to love our neighbor. Not just who we define as our neighbor, but everybody that bears the image of God. It's not just the people that think like you or vote like you, or are generally in your same socioeconomic group, or of your same race, or live in your same neighborhood, or have the same, you know, go to the same schools, whatever. The call is to love people, and when we do that, we are loving Jesus himself. That's what Matthew 25 is communicating. And so I'll close with this, all right? When you know that, when you know that you're loved, our objections, so we're gonna talk about some practical things in the next couple of weeks of opportunities and ways to love other people, to love those that are different from us, to love those that are sometimes on the underside of power, those that are marginalized, often overlooked in our society. But when you know that you're love, some of the objections that we have that begin to just sort of fade away. So allow me to close with this. Robert Murray McShane, Scottish minister in the mid 1800s, talked about this. And I love that this is, this is a long time ago and yet it's as relevant today as when he penned these words. He dealt with objections from it. His own people, right? He's like, okay, give to the poor. But I got some thoughts about the poor. I got some thoughts about the marginalized. I don't know. And he said, for one, sometimes somebody rolls up and, like, you know what? My money is my own. He's like, oh, okay, I got an answer for that. Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we have been? Somebody rolls up and, like, okay, okay, I get that. But the poor, they're actually undeserving. And McShane responds, okay, well, Christ might have said they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give good to the angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Do you see? There's not this distinction, though. There's some people that are undeserving and there's some people that are deserving. We're all undeserving. We're all broken. We're all poor. We're all spiritually bankrupt. The problem with our cultural moment and where we live is we kind of think we're good people. It's nonsense. Maybe a third objection. Okay, I get that, but somebody would roll up and say, okay, but I don't know how they're going to use the money. The po- Maybe they'll abuse it. And McShane says, okay, well, think about this. Christ might have said the same, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make an, an excuse for sinning more, yet he gave his own blood. And so there is a call. We're going to unpack this more, but I need you to know it all flows out of knowing that you're loved by God. And so McShane concludes, he says, oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and the poor and the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and here's the beautiful promise, and so will you be. Doesn't mean, your life's going to be perfect, but there is a joy in being about mishpat, of being so grounded in the love that the Father has for you that you then in turn can go and love your neighbor. Second Corinthians eight, nine, for you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So let me pray for us. Uh, let me lead us just in a time of prayer. And I'll give us some instructions how we're going to continue. Thank you for bearing with me. If you need prayer this morning, there'll be members of our prayer team here in a moment in the back corners. I would encourage you go seek them out. Ask for prayer. Ask somebody to help you experience the love that the Father has for you. And so let me lead us in a time of prayer here. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for your constant reminders through your scriptures that you love us. God, I pray right now that you would hear the prayers of your people. Hear us now as we repent of the ways that we've failed to believe the gospel where we've given in and we've believed the lies of the enemy. Take a moment now to repent Quietly before the Lord. And God, we are incredibly thankful that in your kindness, you lead us into repentance that can lead them to a rejoicing that we have been loved by you that it's not just trickling out bit by bit, but you are overwhelming us with your love, that you're pouring it out, that you're lavishing it upon us. Take a moment now, quietly, to thank God and to rejoice in the salvation that he has offered. Father, through the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, I ask that we would be a people that would know that we are so loved, that Holy Spirit, you would comfort us moment by moment, reminding us of our identity in you, and that that would lead to us being a people that would seek renewal. That you would lay upon our hearts right now practical ways and ideas, God, give us opportunities to love other people. God, give us it's your direction and leading of what you're calling us to do even in this upcoming year so we might experience more of your love and then extend that love to others. So God, thank you that you are with us. I pray that you would be honored and glorified as we continue to worship you throughout the rest of this service and on into this week and into this new year. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.